0: This is the On The Touchline podcast. I'm your host, Jason Broadwater. Welcome to the show. It's pretty crazy to think that this is episode 60 of the year 2019 for this podcast. And I quite truthfully can't believe that we've put out that many episodes in this calendar year. And I just want to thank all the guests and the listeners that have supported this show. And you guys are truly the best. Um, I love hearing that you're listening and that you're engaging with the content that we're putting out. It really means a lot to me as the guy who founded this podcast in 2018. I also want to thank John Townsend and Aaron Rodgers for jumping in and being a part of this crazy experience of podcasting. And I think highly of both of you guys and have enjoyed having you both on the show at different times. So this will be the last episode for 2019. And in 2020, we're going to go to a once a week distribution cycle that allows Aaron and I a little bit more sustainability and not as many breaks. So expect a regular new episode most wednesdays in 2020. we're going to take a break right before our fall seasons uh, that way we can focus on the work at hand but we'll be back in your feed again late in 2020. so you can expect podcast up until probably the start of training camp at the end of july if you're new here i encourage you to go back and listen to those 60 episodes or so that have come out in 2019. Some really fantastic guests and a wide variety of coaches and players and people that have an influence in this game. And really that is what this podcast is all about. It's about showcasing those stories and it's about showcasing people that you can interact with and get to know just a little bit better from high level coaches to coaches that are living and breathing in your community that this is truly our game. And we want this podcast to be a way to bring people together and make the football world just a little bit smaller. I mention in each podcast that this show is available on all major podcasting platforms. So whatever platform you prefer, please be sure to subscribe to the show. And if you listen to the show on Apple Podcast, I want you to hit the pause button right now, go there, and please leave a five-star rating in a review for the show and help more and more people when they search soccer or football podcast, that they'll find the on the touchline show. And of course, last but not least, you can connect with Aaron and I at any time on social media and especially Twitter and Instagram. I'm at soccer coach JB and he is at Ohio soccer coach in season three, episode 10, Aaron and I talked to Benny Delgado. Benny grew up in Chicago, but spent a significant portion of his youth in Mexico City. He talks about the influence of street soccer, coming back to the States and playing in the Chicago Fire youth system, and how he got into coaching. And most recently, Benny has worked alongside and learned from the folks at Forward Madison FC in the USL. I've included links in the show notes of how you can connect with Benny and learn more about his journey and hit him up on social media while you're there. I hope you enjoyed the last episode of 2019 with our guest, Benny Delgado. You know, Benny, we always start with the question of uh, it's great to know players and coaches origin story of how you fell in love with this game that we all love and so um, tell the listening audience a a little bit about your background and uh, we'll see where it goes from there.
1: Yeah so um, I was born in Chicago but uh, I live a good part of my childhood in Mexico and I mean like soccer is king in Mexico so soccer was everywhere you know my dad played my godfather played um, all my uncles watched it from both sides of my family so um, soccer was pretty much all over for me growing up and I, I grew a passion for it. Um, I actually kind of died down a little bit when I, came, when I started moving back to Chicago. I actually started playing baseball. Hmm. Um, but, like, eventually I got bored with baseball and went right back into soccer. Um, I played a little bit with uh, Chicago Fire's youth, youth ranks, um, which was really cool, really unique experience, really opened my eyes to, like, you know, a higher level of soccer. Um, but, uh, yeah, and then I played one year at Division Three at Belway College. Um, that was just. I decided just to leave that because I mean I wasn't really enjoying my time playing. Kind of lost a passion for it. Um, and but with that came growing a passion for coaching. So now, um, and more of like the technical side of this, of soccer. So now I work for Four Madison FC of USL League One, and um, I coach at a few local clubs in Wisconsin and at a high school too.
0: You've uh, you've done a lot in a, uh, a short amount of time, and I think that's awesome. Um yeah. I'm really curious about, uh, you know, the, the football culture in Mexico and, you know, having talked with um, different coaches that, have, um, you know, sort of heritage uh, around the world, right. Um, we're currently with uh, a number of coaches from England and, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, not only North American coaches, but um, South American and, uh, and people from all over the world. And, you know, truly when we say it's the, the global game game, um, you know, it it really is. And I think that, uh, you know, Aaron talks about this all the time that um, that is the thread that brings all of us together. And so I wonder what that youth experience um, until you move back to Chicago, what that was like. And, you know, I've heard stories that, you know, players are playing in the streets and players are, you know, actively engaged in sort of pickup soccer and, You know, you can find a park or you can find kids just playing, you know, uh, a lot. And I think we miss that a lot here in Mm -hmm. the States. And I feel, you know, I, I want my players to experience things like that, but it's a different environment here. So what was it like for you?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it was definitely, I think there's kind of a lot of pressure into playing soccer over there, but there's also a lot more of enjoyment to it. Just because, I mean, if you're good and you can play, like, it can get you, you know, like, it's a lot of, like, like, pretty high, like, you think of yourself really highly and hold yourself really highly. Like, in the streets, you're known as the best kid on the street. Um, But um, it was really unique, and it is very true, like, for for me. um, Kids were playing and kicking around a soccer ball around every single corner. Um, Everyone had a soccer ball, but um, I think the biggest difference was, like, to like the United States is um, definitely like even just access to uh, like, uh, like soccer balls, cleats and stuff like that. Um, Everything is played on like concrete. Um, The balls are very, very cheap, very like very low material, very low quality. Um, So I think that's why I think the pressure for me in, in living there for a few years kind of just made me want to try something else just because I was, I was, I, was um, I grew up in a culture where it was just one sport. Um, but then when I came to the United States and back to Chicago, I kind of wanted to explore more options and then it ended up being baseball. But um, when I started getting back into soccer and competitive soccer, I, it, it started kind of like hitting me differently at the fact that people don't take it. Not, I'm not saying that they don't take it serious, but it's just not like a passion, you know, because um, when I started getting back into playing into club or training with teams and stuff like that, um, a bunch of the players on a bunch of my teammates were just like, "Oh, I play. I, I mean, I play basketball. I play baseball. I play mm-hmm. football. I, you know, soccer is just like, I just play it for fun and stuff like that." Um, which I think like is like kind of like a sets the roots for some of the issues that U.S. soccer faces. But um, I think that was the just kind of like the biggest culture shock, just the fact that um, you know the pressure that there is for athletes to do good like in basketball. that I've seen mostly in Chicago and the United States is like what it would be like in Mexico.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. Um, Tell me about what it was like when you're with Chicago Fire and, uh, you know, that youth experience uh, coming back and seeing, you know, a little bit of what you touched on, um, you know, in Mexico, but then sort of comparing that to what you're experiencing or what you experience uh, here in the States.
1: Yeah. So what I kind of experienced was some guys were some of my teammates were very very good and were all out soccer, and came from families that were all in into uh, into pushing into getting their soccer careers going. Um, but I also had teammates that were you know that you know like I mean it's club soccer and um, well I was first I first started with the club with the club team for Chicago Fire, and so it was either some guys that were just on the brink of getting called up to the academy. And then there was guys that were just, like, you know, they were there because their parents could afford them playing there. Um, so it was I, – I mean, the coaching was really good. I definitely grew, like, those three, four years of coaching that I lost playing baseball, um, I gained it back within just, like, I would say honestly would say one season um, mm. with Chicago Fire, um, which I, I really, like, valued my time there because I, I don't think I would have developed into a player in both, like, you know, my technical ability, my technical ability fundamentals. And even IQ of the game, if I didn't um, just play with Chicago Fire for those two years that I did.
0: I won't ask you about the uh, Chicago Fire rebrand. <laughs> yeah.
1: uh, I'm, I'm not. I'm not a fan of it at all. <laughs> it's...
0: People know if they uh, follow my Twitter account that I like to take swings at MLS sometimes. So uh, (laughs) I I won't, I won't, we're, we're amongst friends here, right? So I'm not (laughs) going to pick a fight today.
1: (laughs) I'm uh, um, very, I'm very pro MLS, but um, so I tend to support just like the growth of MLS and the the game of MLS. But when it comes to, I, I mean, I think that's just the biggest issue in MLS. There's a lot of mismanagement from top to bottom and, I think Chicago Fire being, you know, someone that played for Chicago Fire and um, a big fan of Chicago Fire growing up, um, it's kind of just like really sad to see your club being one of those that's like always going to be criticized no matter what they do because they always seem to make the worst decision um, that they can make.
2: Why do you think they they rebranded in the way they did? I mean, to go from such an iconic logo and then to take it to something, I don't know. I mean, if you think about like Juventus went through that, what, two years ago and they have their new logo, which I guess people look at now and don't, and it's grown on them. But when they went to it, they kind of, the same thing was said like, oh man, they're taking an iconic Juventus logo and they're changing it into this hipster looking logo. Yeah, you know, Maybe, who knows, maybe that's what the Chicago Fire are doing. I don't know, being, being there in Chicago, being closer to it, have they given any explanation? Have they said anything about that?
1: Um, so actually, pretty interestingly, like I mean, they—I mean, the front office is very aware of the like of like the feedback that they've gotten from not just Chicago Fire fans, but from like pretty much the entire MLS community and MLS fan base. Like, I mean, they saw all the jokes and how people were laughing at Chicago Fire and. Um, they said that it's too soon to tell if, um, if they should start immediately looking at another type of rebrand because they've gone all out. Like they, I, I, That's the thing that is like kind of like puzzles a lot of the fans is um, like how they just immediately started pushing it like hardcore and were, are very like, no, we're not doing this. And I think a big part of the reason why they just wanted the rebrand was because they're playing back again at Soldier Field or mm-hmm. downtown and wanted more of a city vibe. Yeah. Um, but, um, but I mean, I just take a look at like Louisville city, literally, I think this week they had just uh, released a new, uh, like a rebrand and a new logo for the club. And they got a lot of backlash and I, I haven't read it, but I saw that today. A lot of people were posting, um, in the, in the Chicago fire, Facebook fan group that I'm in, a lot of people started posting, like, see, this is what, a, a front, a, a front office that actually cares about the club and its fans do when they face this, like, you know, with a rebrand that fans don't like.
2: Yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, you know, obviously when they moved out, out wherever their stadium is in uh, Bridge, Bridgeview, is that yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, they, they move all the way out there, which is so far from downtown mm-hmm. Chicago. And they were playing in Soldier Field for so long, and then they go way out into the suburb. Yeah. And, but now, obviously, now they're, they're building a new stadium, right? Or are they just going to stay in, in Soldier Field?
1: I think that's the plan that they're just going to stay at Soldier Field. Um, I don't know. There's also just been rumors of like a USL Chicago club or, or, and mm-hmm. I mean, I know there was talks of an NASL team in Chicago a few years ago and apparently it was, it was going to go somewhere, but um, I don't know if that's still going to happen and their plans was to build a stadium inside the city. But I, all I know is that Chicago Fire just has like a lease on Soldier Field and they're going to play there for a few years.
2: I did hear, though, at one point, there was an owner that wanted to build it uh, up in um, Wrigleyville in that area. Mm-hmm. And then it got voted down by the, oh, gosh, I guess the community councils up there and, and all that yeah. stuff. But, but anyway, so, um, you know, speaking of the youth soccer, you, you were talking about being in, in Mexico for a few years and kind of the, just the innate passion that, that the Mexicans and have for soccer and, and playing and in the different mentality. Um, what, is, what, what is the difference in your mind or your estimation in just the setup of youth soccer in Mexico as opposed to the youth soccer here in the U.S.?
1: Um, honestly, I think the u s actually does a lot better than Mexico does for its youth systems um, to try to get into an academy in Mexico is extremely hard and extremely difficult um, if you have a lot of money or if you if, you're, if you have a relative that played for a profession like you know that played for a team in Mexico professionally, the odds of you getting into a youth academy are much much more higher like no matter how good or bad you are um, you 're going to get a spot into that team just because it 's kind of more of, in Mexico, it's more of how much money do you have and um, who do you know that can get you inside the, um, inside of the youth academies. So that's why there's, um, like, in Mexico, it's very true that there's a lot more, like, I would say, like, talented players playing on the street or playing pickup or local recreational leagues than there is in youth academies. Like, and I was just there um, this past summer, and, I, and every time I go, I play in a very big, like, uh, amateur cup that they have in the state from where I'm from. And um, it's, it's like very high level where a bunch of actually a lot of players from the first division um, play in their offseason um, just because they all, it's also there's a lot of money involved in it and they get some pretty decent money playing. Um, so I think that like, like in just in Mexico, um, like the talent, there's more talent everywhere than there is in the U.S., but it's harder for you to get found in Mexico than it is in the U.S. Um, and I think just that's just because Mexican teams are more, like, stubborn when it comes to, like, oh, like, this kid has been playing, you know, six years club and you're just coming from the street. We're going to go with the kid that's been playing club mm-hmm. for six years. Mm-hmm.
2: Do you think – I mean, obviously, the pay-to-play model is is der, deride, derided a lot here in the U.S. because it, it tends to go for people with money. But do you mm-hmm. say – I mean – same thing in Mexico a little bit. I mean, are those – I mean, there's a lot of kids playing soccer, but the ones that can get into the academies either are exceptional talent or those that have the ability to pay for it.
1: Yeah, I, I would say that's, that definitely sticks true with um, Mexican youth soccer. And, I mean, that's why you see the league now um, trying to implement more, like, like restrictions on how many international players Mexican teams can have in their rosters um, – international players Mexican teams can have in their roster because of the fact that uh, like Mexico is getting, gets criticized a lot for um, not fielding any, Mexi- any Mexican players on the field or giving any players um, opportunities. I mean, like, I think two, three years ago, the final between Tigres and America only had three Mexican players on the field. Um, so, like, that's, like, you know, I think compared to the U.S., that's, I, I don't even, no MLS teams has that many, has that little Americans um, on the field playing, especially, you know, like a championship game and stuff like that um but I think it's more evident it shows more in Mexico than it does in um, in the U.S. It's especially because for a lot of these poor kids that play on the streets it's extremely expensive to try to travel back and forth to training in a youth academy and mm-hmm. some families just do not have the money to take to even you know afford to have their kid go for one day. Mm-hmm.
2: Wow wow speaking of of um International restrictions. How many players were on Monterrey yesterday? How many Mexicans played for Monterrey yesterday against my Liverpool team?
1: Um, I don't remember, but I know <laughs> they did. They they had a very good, they have a very good balance of yeah. um, internationals and Mexican players. Um, they they've been very, like, they've done a very good job of um, like I mean their main rivals is Tigres and Tigres gets heavily criticized. Because, I mean, all they do is just, I mean, they were, I would say they're kind of like the Manchester City of Mexican soccer <laughs> where they just splash the cash on players. And yeah. when they got criticized for not um, giving many Mexican players opportunities or not having Mexican players on their rosters, they went out and bought two very expensive Mexican players from Europe, um, which is like, you know, not, not the whole point. And, um, I mean, Chicago Fire had a goalkeeper. Uh, who just got le- didn't get his contract picked up this season? Um, who was playing for Tigres, and he was, and I talked to him once about it. and He was like, "Yeah, there was absolutely no way, even if I'm 30 when I'm 30 years old, there is absolutely no way that they were g- ever gonna give me an opportunity to play with the first team in Tigres, wow. um, wow. just because they were gonna prioritize looking for an international player than you know giving a, a youth academy or homegrown player an opportunity." Yeah.
2: Do you think, do you think that because if they're going to limit the teams, the rosters, are they, are they going to expand their scouting network, the clubs to to, to kind of or create more um, teams in the academies or I don't know the methodology to it, to, to get more players playing at a higher level, more youth players
1: in Mexico? Yeah, I think, I think it will definitely put more pressure on a lot of teams to um, invest in their youth academy. Um, there's like, maybe four or five teams in Mexico that have a high reputation for taking in players from the streets and giving them housing, food, just because, you know, they're good and they're talented. And those are the guys that are, they're going to plan to eventually sell either like to Europe or some other team for a lot of money. And that way they get their investment back on the player. Um, But I think it'll definitely put a lot more pressure and it will change the infrastructure for a lot of the, especially if some of the top, the top, top teams in Mexico to really start, um, pushing towards developing players in their youth academies rather than just splashing cash on international players. Yeah, there's no doubt. The
2: passion for soccer in Mexico obviously is, is second to none. Mm-hmm. And it's, un, it's unbelievable. And, and I, I've not been fortunate enough to go to any, any games in Mexico, but I've, I've been games in, in Brazil and Argentina and Europe. But um, I would love to see that uh, firsthand, that passion um, of, of games in, in, in that uh, that love, that pure, that pure love and passion yeah. for the game.
1: Oh yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. It's pretty wild <laughs> over there. The passion. What's your team? Have. Who do you my, support? My team is Pumas. Oh, they're okay. Out of Mexico City. Sure. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. Sure. Unam Pumas.
1: Yep, yep. Yep. Yeah. That's my first division team, but um, I stay true to also my my like, team closest to my hometown, but they're in the second division. They've been in there for a very long time.
2: <laughs> what are they called?
1: They're called Zacatepec.
2: Okay. Yeah, I don't. I'm not familiar with that team, but um, did you ever have you ever seen the Netflix documentary on Nakaksa from a few years ago? I did. Yeah, yeah, I
1: did. I also just watched the Maradona. Um, mm-hmm. Oh um, yeah, documentary series on his time there too. I
2: haven't watched that one yet. I started the Dortmund one on Amazon mm-hmm. Prime, um, but the the uh, Maradona one is is the next one that I got to watch. But I really found that I love those documentaries, all of them. The yeah. Man City one, the the Liverpool one from when Brendan Rodgers was there and the Niko- the Naccaxo I just it was really cool because they were in the second division yeah. and yeah. and they were trying to get promoted to to the the Liga MX and then it was uh, really cool. and that it's a club with a lot of history too.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um and it's they I mean, they made it. Yeah, and they made it to the they got the yeah. promotion. Yeah.
2: Yeah, really cool.
0: The uh Netflix thing on uh, Maradona is um absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And- i I found Maradona fascinating just as a human being um just for the fact that he is i mean just this walking contradiction of things um and that you know i mean his personal struggles um with drugs and other things, but the man loves football i mean yeah, it just yeah. he just oozes this love of the game and you know um I actually think that. If, if he hadn 't gotten involved in some of the things he got involved in personally that he may be looking at being you know a a really a top flight manager for a european club um I think those things have obviously have played a, a big role in his life, and that um you know he he's bounced around a little bit and but i mean the the turnaround that he had um you know in mexico was was unbelievable and you know, to see players coming up to him. And I mean, there's, there's a certain reverence there for sure, because, you know, in my mind, I mean, he's one of the greatest footballers of all time. Um, But the, he actually, I think he taught the game really well. And these guys, I mean, to to the credit of the players, the players were, I thought quality, you know, I thought yeah. that, you know, they're not just, you know, a bunch of guys that they just found, you know, and said, Hey, let's put them out on the pitch. Um. But he did a good job teaching. And a lot of it was sort of this and maybe he's more of a short term manager than kind of the long term solution, but this sort of high energy, you know, he just oozes passion, you know, he gives a hundred percent of everything of himself and that um you know, in the short, in the short term, he potentially could get some results. So I, I don't know. I, I, but I find him as a, a human being fascinating and it's actually amazing to me that he's still alive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> he's sort of like a, uh, like a, like a rock star, you know, that, um, you know, like some of the guys from like the Rolling Stones that are still alive. <laughs> it's like, you kind of wonder how, how is that, you know, Keith Richards, like how the hell is that guy still alive? But anyway, um, So we're we're jumping around a little bit here, Benny, but uh, you had mentioned, we were talking a little bit about the Chicago fire, you know, rebrand and speaking of, I think teams um, that really got it right. When it comes to sort of their look and their feel and sort of their, just the brand um, is the, you know, uh, forward Madison FC. Um, I I love the, (laughs) the flamingo. I love the pink. Um, I, I think it's, it's fun. I mean, just, you know, tell, you know, not knowing a lot about the club, but it just tells me, wow, like Mm -hmm. this is fun. Right. And so most people probably don't equate flamingos with, you know, Madison, Wisconsin, but um, tell me a little bit about that experience of what that is like uh, being a part of that club and working with them and, and kind of seeing that kind of, um, you know, it's a new thing, right. Kind of originate from, from nothing into something.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's honestly been, like it's, I mean, I enjoy every single thing that I do for that club, whether it's um, whether it's like very like well, you know what might you might find as annoying task, or whether it's you know, just being at practice and learning from our head coach Daryl Shore. Um, like it's 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 surreal, and I mean, I've I I met with Peter Wilt um about you know what I how can I can how I can get involved and what I can do for the club like, and right right around the time that they made the announcement that there was going to be a professional soccer team in Madison, Wisconsin um so being able to see the growth from the team um like we i mean everyone that was involved from that early on we saw the potential and we saw the market that like this team could be very very successful in madison and in wisconsin in general because i mean when i i mean i kind of didn't know anything about like how the soccer scene was in wisconsin um when i like started moving to wisconsin but um i was very shocked and amazed by how much how many people watch soccer uh, how many kids play club soccer and how many um, How many actually like a lot of talented D1 and even professional players come out of Wisconsin. Um, so being able to see that grow from the marketing side was like so much fun to watch. And it was amazing. And uh, the social media department, I, I think, just like, like hit a home run. And, I, and they're still doing it. The team is just continuing to grow. Um, it's And that's literally if you walk into our – if you ever have the opportunity to come into the office of the club, like the same vibe you get from the team in Twitter is the same vibe that you get as soon as you walk into the team shop or, or um, to the offices of the, for the front office. Um, everybody is just like, you know, good, good people, funny people and nice people. Um, so being able to see that, like that growth from within the staff, um, from the front office and the technical staff was really unique and really cool to see that grow and be a part of it. Um, I mean, you, even, I mean, I was someone that was also helping out during our open and invitational tryouts. And that was technically like the first taste of soccer, professional soccer that we got in Madison, Wisconsin. And um, even just from like that experience, like it felt, it felt, I mean, I can't even, I I mean, the best way I can describe it was like it felt magical to see that soccer was growing in in Wisconsin and to like the idea that a professional team was going to start, you know, start playing in Madison was very exciting and, and we had a lot of talented players come into our tryout. So We had national team players. We had guys from overseas come try out. Um, we've had guys with tons of experience, whether it was like in college, professionally, which was which was um, definitely like kind of sparked the thought that like like man, we could actually be very good if we get a lot of interest from these type of players that want to come out and try out and play for us. And um, like all of the invitational players. Um, fell in love with Daryl Shore, our head coach. They fell in love with Peter Will, who is—I mean, he's not—he's not the president of the club anymore. But everybody fell in love with Peter. Everybody, everybody, everybody—I think everyone that meets gets the chance to meet Peter. Will falls in love with him, like honestly, right away. Um, so just to see it grow from you know pretty much just the announcement and not that many people knowing about it to to what it's grown into, pretty much selling out every single home game this season was like surreal I mean the stadium is so small so and I get to stand right by the sideline during games so being able to just kind of take in that atmosphere as somebody they're just watching and analyzing the game was a surreal experience and it definitely made makes everybody feel like they're a part of the club.
0: Tell me a little bit about um, the the different coaches that you've had uh, you know throughout your career and that um, you know Aaron and I talk about this from time to time of You know, for me, it's this sort of culmination of experiences, right? So I take a thing from this person. I take a thing from that person and that, um, you know, as I'm continuously evolving and developing as a coach and realizing that there really, there never is a finish line, that it's always this sort of, you know, work in progress. And I'm always trying to become a little bit better. Or maybe I see something that I never saw uh, in the game. And I wonder for you, um, you know, uh, like, how has that worked And who has been influential for you, um, you know, as you started your coaching journey?
1: Yeah, so I think, um, like, honestly, I think uh, it's interesting the fact that I think the coach that I mostly, like, I think I've taken, like, more of my personality from and my philosophies from is actually my high school baseball coach. Mm. Um, he was someone that, like, I, I, I mean, my high school soccer coaches, I mean, my Chicago Fire coach was extremely demanding. Um, I think to a point where I mean it definitely helped like players grow and get better but it was also to a point where it was kind of like almost like overkill where I mean I know I experienced it once in a while where I was just like is this even I mean is this even worth it am I actually really getting anything out of it I had like no teammates quit the team because it was just it was just way. I mean our coach was just way too demanding Um, but my high school baseball coach um, I mean, he knew right away that I was like, the, I think he, I mean, yeah, he was very aware that soccer was my number one sport, um, but he still worked with that. It was very personal with me and like in talking about, you know, what my aspirations are, um, but also just like demanded a lot out of me as a baseball player and honestly helped me grow a lot. I, I mean, I was being looked at to play college baseball as well. And that was something that I did not expect um, playing, you know, just, I just played at high school baseball for fun because you know I still like baseball um but and just his his style of being very demanding on his athletes but also being like that guy that after practice like if he if he was to yell at me at practice he would right right away after practice come pull me aside and be like hey like like I didn't mean to yell at you like that and just I just want you to know that this has it has to be done this way or it has to be better and give me like details as to what I need to do better next time or and if, um, if I had questions, he would gladly stay half an hour to an hour after practice to help me work on whatever I needed to work on. Um, so I think that's something that I've definitely taken from him coach, when i coach, like coaching more of like youth players. Um, but I've um, I, I definitely taken the demanding and the asking for almost like perfection from um, my old fire coach because I think at that age, I did not, I did not get it. I didn't understand the point of it but now that I'm kind of like in his shoes in the same place that he is, um, I, 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 I see where he's coming from. And he was also from Europe. So um, I think that also kind of has something to do with it, that his culture was like you know, demanding for perfection and demanding um, that you do almost everything right. So um, yeah, and then it was also a different experience learning from Fort Madison's uh, head coach, Daryl Shore and the assistant coach, Neil Hlavity. Um, and also just seeing all the other coaches, I got to, I got to meet and talk with every single coach from all of USL League One, and even um, the interim head coach from Hertha Berlin, um, the head coaches from Leones Negros in second division in Mexico, um, Adrian Heath from Minnesota United. So learning from all of these guys was like being able to mix all of it together has definitely been um, very, like, very positive learning experience for me and has definitely, I think, put me a step ahead from where a lot of people are at
0: yeah uh i'm uh, i'm not gonna lie i'm uh, a little envious that's uh, yeah. i mean some i mean fantastic coaches and um you know experiences that uh that you've had um you know and, and the cool thing you know benny you're uh, you're a little bit younger than than aaron and i <laughs> and that um you know to to be able to go on this journey in this path is um you know something that uh aaron was telling me a little bit earlier today that would you say aaron you started down this path at twenty three um, you know, I, I was the late bloomer of the group. <laughs> um, so I, I was in my 30s and still am in my 30s. But, you know, waking up um, in, in a completely different career going, you know, holy smokes, like, I want to be a football coach, I want to be a soccer coach, and I want to. So I'd, I've i been trying to figure out how to, you know, I'm headed in this direction. And now I need to go in this direction and kind of making those pivots to do that. And so I wonder what the game looks like or what you want the game to look like for you. Um, you know, I'm, uh, I feel pretty strongly. I always tell people that I'll, I'll die on the hill of, uh, you know, possession-based soccer, mm-hmm. but it also, but I say that also knowing that I have to be adaptable as a coach and I have mm-hmm. to be able to understand the temperature and the climate of the room of the players that I'm leading and for you, what style of football or, um, you know, what do you, want, what do you want it to look like when it's out there on the pitch?
1: So I think uh, for me, like, I definitely am more of a guy that prefers, like, high pressing and organization but and possessing of the ball. Um, but I think, I think the main thing that I also – I just want everybody, like, you know, other teams, if they play against my team, I want them to just to remember that, like, they can clearly like, I, I identify what, my, what I want my team identity – and what my like what my values and my principles are for my for my team. So I mean, like I mean uh, when I started coaching this uh, high school girls soccer program um, with a, with my good friend, um, I mean we were very excited. The team had a lot of potential, but it was very low on confidence. um it was very far behind compared to other teams. So as much as we wanted to play, you know, like a four three three with like you know our fullbacks overlapping a lot and you know just pressing nonstop and maintaining possession. Our team just wasn't good enough and we started and playing like that, we started out 0-6 uh, like 0-6, like we started like 0-6, 0-9 to start the season off so we were like, this is going to be, you know, kind of a project and so we adapted really quickly to um, changing the, our game to a more defensive, compact counterattacking style of soccer and um, that was like the word got started getting spread around coaches like, is like you know, like this team is going to sit back a lot but you got to be careful when you lose possession because they're going to bite you and that's kind of like the identity that I want and um, and I mean, you, I, I think also seeing it from the profession at the professional level, those are typically the best coaches who, as soon as they, as as soon as the whistle blows, like and they're intense right away, and you can ext- right away see what type of soccer that they play, and you can see what they've been working on in training all week. Um, I think that's more of the style, like what I want to see in soccer. Um, I, that's what I want people to realize, like or like to see from my teams when I coach. Um, but yeah, I think I just think. Uh, teams and coaches being able to establish their identity and their principles, and for it to be like, very visible and easy to see on the field, um, I think is a good sign of like the way that a team is coached and how players are developing.
0: Mm-hmm. I know Aaron uh, and I talk a lot about the psychological side of the game, and Aaron, bring you back in. Um...
2: The one of the things that I that you said early on in our conversation today was you played a year of college soccer, mm-hmm. and you lost the passion, you Mm -hmm. lost the enjoyment. And for me, you know, I, one of the things that I talk to my team about on a regular basis is, do you find joy in this every day? Do Mm -hmm. you find joy? And so where do you feel like you lost that? And then in turn, how did you, how do you take that experience and transfer that to the, your team now to make sure that they don't lose a joy and a passion for it?
1: Um, I I mean, for me, it was for a a variety of reasons. I mean, I got two concussions in the same, you know, in the same season. And it was very – and, you know, I I had a pretty bad ankle sprain. So, I mean, it was a very, like, injury, you know, like like season where I had to sit out a lot of games because of injuries. Um, But even when I was back, um, like, I just – I mean – I don't, I don't want to throw that coach under the bus because he's a, he's a good coach. Um, but I mean, just whenever I was at practice, I, I, I and at games, I continuously found myself questioning, like, like what's, like, what's why are we doing this, drill, And I mean, how is this going to help us, you know, beat, you know, like when we play St. Norbert, who's one of the top D3 schools in the nation, um, how is like, you know, how is this doing this in practice and preparing like this going to help us, you know, even try to compete against them? Um, so I, I kind of just find, I have found myself, asking more questions and rather than and not finding answers um and that ultimately led to just kind of like not realizing like you know like maybe I, I, I think that kind of grew my passion into coaching because um I was tired of, of playing of, or like you know like we're practicing and doing drills throughout the week but then the day before a game day um it was a, it was about every single week we never stuck to a formation we never stuck to a style of play it was Right, you know, St. Norbert plays a four-three-three, so we're gonna sit back and play a five-three-two. Um, and we played one of the lower schools in our conference, like, you know, like, so we're playing, I don't know, we're playing Monmouth. They play, I don't know, like a four-four-two, but they sit back a lot, so we're gonna go with a four-three-three. Like, like I just like for me being as a player, especially as a freshman, like I wanted to know what I can do and what the coach wants me to do every single se- every single time I stepped on the field. But every single time I stepped on the field, you know, like I, I played out wide or up top. And I was going from play either being the only one up top one week to then going either a partner striker or I was going from playing as a fullback and compared to a winger that was the other week. So, And that part of the game was very frustrating. Um, and I think def- on my part, I, I, I should have definitely talked to the coach about it um, and told him, like, hey, like, like you know, like, I, I'm not liking the way that things are going. Um, but um, I think that also goes along with, you know, coaches – had to always remember to keep like team morale up and to always you know reiterate to their players that, that they can trust you know him or her into what they're doing what they're trying to do. So um I think in order to get the passion back from players, it's just I think communication is very important. Being 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 very honest and kind of giving them like a promise not a promise but like more of a give them give them a passage that they can see through as to what it will look like in the future, whether it's for them individually or for the team. And then whether they help, hopefully helps them stay, then they stay. If not, I mean, that just happens. Sometimes people just lose the passion to play or just lose love for the game.
2: So how do you, so if you have the opportunity with your, with your high school team, how do you, how do you design sessions? How do you design team meetings to, to include everybody to make sure everybody feels a value in,
1: in who they are? So I think one of the biggest things that we do that I actually, like, you know, it's a very small town where I coach high school at. And it's a very, you know, stereotypical, like JV and varsity, you know, split apart, but um, we kind of like shook things up a lot, like for this town and and for a lot of the teams around the area where we included JV and everything that varsity did too. like JV practice with varsity. um, So that way they can learn, but also we, I mean, If we we were doing something extremely difficult that was more towards varsity, then JV would do something else. But whether it it was scrimmaging, whether it was technical drills, tactics, everything was done with JV. And we continuously, almost every single game, called up a girl from JV because um, it also – you know, that that small-town pride comes in where, you know, some of our athletes were like, oh, I'm on varsity. I don't need to work hard. Like, I already did what I was supposed to do. And then, um, I mean, we got a lot of – we got a lot of of feedback – from a game where we, we played a very top – we're a Division three school, and we played a very good Division one school. Um, but our upperclassmen were just not working hard. They were kind of like not being good leaders towards the underclassmen. And the JV girls were working their, their tails off. The, uh, the JV team was actually beating the varsity team in scrimmages throughout the week. So for that game, we benched pretty much all the upperclassmen and played. Um, I, th- I would say more than half of the, the teams fielding the game that day was JV girls. And that kind of sent the message to everybody about like how everybody's included. And um, the VAR, for the varsity girls, it's like you, you have to always continue working and keep working. Cause um, I mean, I, that small town pride, it just gets to the embarrassment if a JV girl takes their spot, but it also helped our JV girls realize that their work does not go unnoticed. Um, if you work hard and if you listen to what we try to tell you to do, then um, good things will come your way and it's going to help you out in the long run.
2: So you feel like, cause you said something earlier that I really liked it. I thought it was a good way to put it. So a pathway for a player. Mm-hmm. So do you feel like each, even the JV players, even the varsity players, they understand these are the expectations and, and this is how you can continue to improve.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, we try to have a conversation with every single one of the girls from JV and varsity. And we tell them like, you know, it's, before we tell them, what what our expectations and what we and how they're going to be used on the team before we tell them that we ask them what they want or what they expect or and stuff like that and so for example for some girl it might be you know i i want to become a regular starter or you know like i just want to work on you know like being able to read the game more like you know like you know we just ask them what they think they can do better or what they want and then then we hit either it, it can be a nice conversation where we're like Yep, we agree. We're going to. That's where we. That's where we see you as. You know, we see you as someone that can give this girl a break and come in, you know, and play 20 minutes, give them a 20-minute break or something. Or it's a conversation where someone maybe feels that they should be a starter or one of the best players on the team, but we tell them unfortunately like that's not the case. But we don't just leave it off like that. We tell them we, like, but we. It's not like we tell them like, it's not like you cannot be the best player on this team. Like we will work with you so that we can help you be like that player that you want that you want to be. Um, and that always gives, I think, we see seen positive results from that because, I mean, we've seen girls who, I mean, barely started playing soccer their freshman year of high school. And now we, we, we this is our third year, and, you know, they're, it's their third year. Now they're, they're, like, they're without a doubt, you know, on varsity. Like, they're players that are going to stay on varsity and they're going to be starting. And so for us, for me and um, the head coach that I work with, like, it's been very rewarding to see that, you know, our kind of, like, our – our, our little our plan to help this like the program grow has has been working um so i guess yeah that's how
2: it, it yeah i mean i think it's i mean i think honesty consistency and yeah. communication i mean if you're honest and you're up front you're consistent with your conversations and then obviously you have a, a a a and a lot of a a lot of communication so that there everybody is on the same page um a really really good friend of mine Um, it said to me one time that he he um, uh, restricted anybody ever coming into his office and say what can I do to earn more playing time Mm -hmm. because if you ask that question and I tell you well you need to go and improve your striking the ball over 30 yards well what happens if somebody strikes the ball they go and they can strike the ball better from 30 yards but something else in their game is keeping them off the field and they go well you told me if i can strike the ball over 30 yards i'm going to play more you know you Mm -hmm. paint coaches into the corner so you know we're always open to helping you develop as a as a student and as Mm -hmm. an athlete but you know we got to be honest and and consistent with our communication because if if we tell you to do something you're going to play more then it just doesn't work out, and we become um, inconsistent or we become not trustworthy and so I think that's always a, that's always something good um, good perspective to look at, but you're right honesty communication and and uh, consistency mm-hmm. is uh, extremely important
1: yeah
0: aaron this uh what Benny just said reminds me of what you and I were talking about uh, a little bit earlier today where um So uh, paraphrasing here, and you can fill in the name of the book for me, Aaron, because I'm I'm blanking on it. But um, so Aaron was telling me about this book that he's reading, and it's about leadership. And so he and I come from a generation of very top-down leadership. And, you know, some people might use sort of militaristic, some people might use sort of like a chain of command, whatever phrase, but, you know, there's a clear leader, that leader dictates to the people below, he or she. And everybody else sort of complies. And you know, when when people aren't compliant in what the leader is asking, obviously there become problems. So, um, it, you know, Aaron had mentioned to me that he was definitely a part of that, and I sort of felt I I, def, I experienced that as well. But also am sort of kind of in this weird in between zone um, where I also experience sort of peer to peer leadership where. Um, you know, we as players were sort of setting the culture and identifying the culture and you know kind of nurturing the culture and I love what you said, Benny, of you asked the players what they wanted, right? You asked them in terms of you know, hey, where do you think you're you're best served at you know as part of our team? you know where's your role in this team?" and then you listen, and so that's a pivot. In leadership and aaron you can fill in some of the gaps here um because <laughs> i'm blanking on the name no, of the that you told no, me No,
2: the, the book is is the future of leadership and it was written by josh medcalf and seth madison i've got it right here i'm just looking at it um and, and it was, it's, it's very fascinating because you know it, it talks about and i'm only a third of the way through so i haven't gotten to the real nuts and bolts of it but just kind of the premise of it is is that you know people born nineteen eighty or before are very into this top down hierarchy type of leadership. So whatever the whatever the top says, you do. And then as as social media, as technology, as all this information becomes more and more ready and more and more at hand, younger people and generationally understand what it takes maybe maybe not understand what it takes to be a leader per se but want to take more part of that because they know more they have more access to information and so um and so they may have a little more information on technology i mean one of the one of the um uh, analogies that they gave was an older person always looks to a younger person to fix something on their iphone or their their Um, internet system or whatever, my Wi-Fi system. And so now they have a little more um, influence. And so I think that's that's really important to understand that neither one is good or bad or right or wrong, but it's different and it's generational. And you have to be able to adapt to that new way of thinking. And so, you know, for me being older and, and being in that hierarchy type of system, I had to evolve as... As you said, asking, listening, interacting. How can we give more ownership to the group than can we just take this ownership and take this and, 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 and take it all? Because people want that, and if they don't feel like they're getting that, then how are they going to be motivated at their highest level? And so that that I think is is amazing because to talk to you somebody that's that's young and and bright-eyed going into this coaching world with a different perspective that we have it's nice to hear how you see things and again you you could still be playing right
1: yeah i do yeah
2: you still play but you could still be you could still be a college athlete maybe Mm. or or right there so what are those things so how do you see so like you talk about your experience as a player do you think about those things and now do you look at things slightly differently as a coach
1: yeah one 100 percent. i think coaching has taken you know my um my game to a whole nother level um so i mean after playing college it's like my first season of college soccer i kind of thought like you know what, i don't think playing at a high level is really um you know in my sights but um just from coaching, I think I, I, I don't think tactically and IQ wise, I don't think I knew the game enough to maybe even sometimes understand what my coach wanted or expected out of me. And I think that's just the biggest thing that I've learned is um, like I at times, uh, even in college, I felt that I was not I didn't feel like I was important to the team. Um, I didn't know what to do and I was lost and I, I needed like, you know, like more, I, I want to say guidance but I needed to kind of know more of what I was doing because I kind of felt at the same time that I didn't know what I was doing. Um, so I think coaching definitely opened my eyes. And like, even though I missed, I have missed out now was it, two years of college soccer, um, I would say that I'm better than, I, than, I, than I've ever been before. Um, just because from coaching, and like, I'm also a coach that likes to participate um, in drills with, uh, with my athletes, whether it's sometimes for numbers or for fun or whatever the reason is, like, um, like, I get into it a lot. And I'll, I think because of it, because I, because as a coach, I see it from the coach's perspective now. Like, I, I know what the goal of every single drill, I, I, every drill that I do is, I know what the goal is. Um, What I, like, you know, I demand and expect out of myself what I would expect out of any athlete that I, that, I, that I'm coaching right now. Um, so, I mean, and because of this, like, I think, I would say that technically and athletic wise, I would say that I am not like, you know, at at an elite level, but just because I think from coaching, I have, I, my reading of the game has increased so much. And my, like, you know, my tactical awareness has increased so much that, you know, like I've actually, actually just like two days ago, I got an offer to join a USL league one team for preseason. Um, And that's just, I mean, I wouldn't say that I'm technically the greatest player or or the most athletic player can be the most athletic player on the field, but. Um, a lot of coaches that I've talked to, and a lot of players that I've talked to, um, they've always like written, told me that that's kind of something that like h- held them back a little bit, that helped them take them to the next level. Just the technical awareness and being, I guess, like a coachable player that can re- like you know can be aligned with what the coach is thinking.
2: It's I always I always love it when I get phone calls or text messages or emails from players. When they grow after they graduate and they go, ah, coach, I know exactly what you were talking about now, (laughs) however many years later. And so, I mean, as you make that transformation from a player to a coach, you start your eyes open Mm
1: -hmm. to different
2: things and you go, oh man, maybe, maybe as you you mentioned it, you know, maybe I didn't understand my expectation. And maybe, and I think for me, that's something that's so important is, is that how do we continue? to define expectations for each player um, because you know you have a big roster you have a high school you have a big roster college you have a big roster you know maybe not as much in club soccer you might have a little bit less like youth club soccer but you know you have players on the you know at the top of the roster that don't play as much but how do you define their role and give them something that they can feel like they are contributing to the team yeah, you know, and that's and that's that's a never-ending never-ending quest of mine to try to make sure player number twenty-eight feels as invested as player number one.
1: Yeah, I think that definitely has. I've I've tried to bring that into my coaching as much as I can because um, I don't want I want my players to also be on the same page as I am. And um, so I I mean I know when I used to ask coaches a question as to why are we doing this or what's this going to help me with and stuff like that. Coaches would just kind of like, you know, get mad that I even asked that question. Um, And so whenever, like, the players that I coach ask me, like, why are we doing this? drill? I mean, I've I've had players question drills that I do, you know. Like, for example, I I had my fullbacks literally just receive a ball diagonally and just take a touch into space um, just because I, you know, I really, like, you know, my style of play is I want my fullbacks penetrating. Um, And so during that drill, they didn't see the purpose of it. And instead of getting mad and annoyed that they're asking me, you know, what's the whole point of this? Why are we doing this? This is very, this is, this is so easy, or stuff like that. Um, like, I always took the time, like, even if I stayed explaining something for 20 minutes, um, I'll explain to them detail by detail why it's this, like, easy drill is extremely crucial and vital into how they're going to play in games, because um, it's really, and it's really cool when, like, you know, seeing their, like, like a light bulb spark in their brain that, like, oh, wow, this is exactly what we did in practice and stuff like that. So that for me makes me feel good. And it's been something that I've been always been trying to work on when I'm coaching.
2: Good perspective. And you know what? I'll tell you, this is my, my um, armchair psychologist <laughs> philosophy or theory on this. Because of this hierarchy type of leadership role, when I was a kid and somebody said, do this, or I, were, I was curious about that, it would be hard to find the answer. Mm -hmm. Guess how easy it is to find the answer to whatever question that you have today. It takes two (laughs) seconds. My son, I've got a 13 year old son and a 10 year old daughter and they have questions about something that I have no idea what the (laughs) answer is. And they're like, well, give me your phone. Or my son has a phone and he's just like this. And he has the (laughs) answer in 30 seconds. Yeah. (laughs) And so it is so vital for people to really understand because if your player and it's awesome that you did that if your fullback says well why am i doing this because the way her her mind is processing i want to know the answer because she knows on her iphone or whatever technology she has she can get the answer in 30 seconds and so now she needs to do that when i was a kid i would have had to go to the library open up a an encyclopedia and you know oh, it would take forever so i would just be like well that person's older than me and they're my boss or they're my coach so they know the answer and that was yeah. it. So I think that's a it's a wonderful perspective, and and there again, generational differences, but being able to to connect and 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 um, really really join together, mm-hmm. mentalities is so important.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: I think the the why piece. If, so if you can explain the why to players in a a game like situation, it's exactly what you said, Benny. That if you're doing something in training but they're going to see that 5, 10, 15, 25 times in a game that they there's a little bit more buy-in, right? It isn't just, we're just doing this because coach said. This actually is applicable and has value to what we're trying to do um, as a team. And, you know, I've experienced this with my high school team of um, there, there is a lot of why. You know, coach, why are we doing this? Coach, what does this mean? Coach, blah, 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 blah. I've had it down, you know, to some of the the U10 and U11 players that I'm currently working with at at the club I'm at. And they want to know that. And I think it, Aaron, it's exactly what you said. It's a, it's, it's a generational shift in terms of, you know, access to information has never been easier and higher than it is right now. And, and that's a good thing, you know Um, uh, (laughs) we had a funny moment um, in our house that um, my son was working on a science project for some science fair, and he's in fourth grade, and you know we needed to know how many gallons of water are used in a load of laundry. Where in the hell are you going to find that information, <laughs> right? I mean, thank God that. Uh... So, literally at my kitchen, at our kitchen, in our kitchen, and I said. Uh, you know, hey Google, uh, how many uh, you know gallons of water in a load of laundry? And it was actually a lot more than I realized. So have a whole different perspective on that now. But how many uh, is that, by the way? Uh, it was like forty-five. Oh God! Yeah, I, I know. I was like, oh, I hate to, <laughs> I hate to find out how much, how many I use during a shower or, you know, uh, whatever. But um, it's interesting. So the, the more you know, I guess you could say.
2: Yeah
0: um Benny as we wrap up um where do you see this going uh for you um you're you know uh, venturing into coaching land and where you know five years ten years where do you hope to be uh, along in your journey
1: um so I kind of I someone that I really looked up to is um Nate Miller who was who was the head coach for Lansing um Ignite um he started out his uh coaching very young and I mean he was a he was a pro he was coaching professionally for Lansing you know I think, I think he was he was like 32 30 So, um, like, I think, and he's, like, gave me a lot of, like, uh, was very, was praising the fact that I'm starting out so young um, with his coaching things because he thinks that he was, like, you know, a very, very good guy and gave me so much advice and so much knowledge into, like, and how me starting this young and actually being passionate and wanting to, you know, take this as far as I can is going to help me in the long run. So, I kind of hope that within five to seven years, I'm either, coaching uh at the college level or um or you know a part of the technical staff for a pro team um so which i i think can be very real is, is a very realistic but it's i mean it's a reach but it, i think it's also very realistic for me um considering all the help and the connections and stuff like that that i have so um i don't know that's kind of where i want to be but regardless i still think that in five to seven years i'm going to be coaching somewhere um, i think minimally I kind of want to make make maybe hopefully be able to do this as a full-time job
0: I think that's awesome and um you know and as Aaron and I can attest that once it gets in your blood that uh you know in terms of coaching it's hard to get rid of it man it's um it's the best Uh, it, it is literally the best and um love every moment of it the good the bad and everything in between and um, when you make it uh, big and famous, Benny, make sure that you remember uh, <laughs> us, yeah. little, us little guys. <laughs> of course. When um, you're
2: coaching Pumas. Let us know.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, or yeah, Chicago sure. Fire, or the U.S. <laughs> national team, or
1: that would so. be nice, right?
0: <laughs> oh my God, that would be that would be amazing yeah Um, Benny if people want to follow along in your journey and and keep in touch and uh, reach out to you how can they uh, find you on social media
1: Uh, I think the best way is on Instagram so on Instagram it's Benny so b-e-n-n-y-d-10 underscore Um, can't remember my Twitter username out of the top of my head but Instagram is definitely the best place
0: actually have your Twitter up right now uh, at Francisco Benny Uh, there you go
1: yeah easy (laughs) yeah
0: yeah. And uh, I say it often, but thank God for the power of social media, man, because, yeah. you know, if it wasn't for that, uh, you and I and, and Aaron, um, the three of us probably wouldn't have been having this conversation today. So thank for you sure. for coming on the show and uh, wish you all the best going forward.
1: Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it.
0: big shout out to Benny Delgado for coming on the latest episode of the On the Touchline podcast. Benny, Aaron, and I wish you nothing but success going forward in your footballing journey, and I hope that we have the opportunity sometime in the future that we can meet up in person and talk about the game that we all love. I mentioned earlier in the show that starting in 2020, we're going to go to a a once-a-week distribution cycle. So most Wednesdays in 2020, you can expect a new episode of the On the Touchline podcast. So be sure that you subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting platform. That way you never miss a new episode when it comes out. And our run will go from January probably until the end of July. Uh, We'll take a break for the fall football season for both Aaron and I. And then we'll pick back up again probably right around Thanksgiving uh, or so later in 2020. Guys, thank you so much for your support of this podcast, of both Aaron and I, not only as hosts and people involved with this show, but as coaches and as people, it really does mean a lot, and I love getting text messages and DMs and, you know, just connecting with everybody in the football community, and I know this is the, the soccer or football romantic in me talking, but it really means a lot, and it's really neat to make this world this footballing world that we all love, just a little bit smaller. So we hope that in 2020, we can continue to deliver high-quality content that you'll enjoy, share with other folks in the footballing and soccer communities, and continue to help us pay it forward as a show. So reach out to us anytime on social media. I'm at soccer Coach JB on Twitter and Instagram, and you can find Aaron at OhioSoccerCoach. Happy New Year, and we will catch you guys early in 2020. This has been the latest episode of the On the Touchline podcast.